The book Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic, has been the starting point for many people who want to understand the drug crisis gripping Ohio and other states. Author Sam Quinone's 2015 book traced the roots of America's addiction to opiates, from the aggressive marketing of the narcotic painkiller OxyContin to the rise of black tar heroin from Mexico. Through his reporting, Quinones told a story that stretched from Portsmouth, Ohio, a community devastated by addiction, to the small coastal state of Nayarit, Mexico, where opium poppies were grown and turned into heroin. Along the way, Quinones said, he found a story that was fundamentally about isolation in American society. The Kent Repository recently spoke with Quinones about his book, New Developments in the Epidemic, and How Communities Are Fighting Back. I was thinking maybe a good place to start um, for those who haven't read the book is maybe to explain, you know, what was Dreamland and why did you choose that title for the book? Uh, Dreamland was a swimming pool that is located in the town of Portsmouth, Ohio, that was, uh, to my assessment, um, kind of a the central plaza of the town. It was a place, in other words, where people saw each other, where everyone greeted each other, where everyone grew up. Uh, everyone watched out for each other. Well, you know, not everybody got along, but it was a place where you could be a community together. Of course, it was supported by the fact that there were steel factory jobs and shoe factory jobs and a variety of other jobs. There was a, a very vibrant Main Street and there was um, 50,000 people uh, in, in town. And, and so it, it, was, it was, to my way of thinking, kind of an emblem of, of the kind of community that existed in, in many towns like Portland back then, where people were working class. They were not middle class, really, even. But they, and they, some of them were actually, you might consider them poor, but they didn't consider themselves that way because there was a lot of things to do. People... Uh, people did things together outside, and, and Dreamland Pool was um, kind of the emblem of all that. It was a place where everybody got together. It was an enormous swimming pool, space for everybody, lots of field around it. Um, the guy who owned it uh, also owned a shoe factory, and, and he thought that he didn't really need the money from the swimming pool and added to it so there was more room for picnic tables and basketball courts and all that kind of stuff. And so it was a place where the whole town really could feel um, uh, together, um, I think. And um, uh, as the deindustrialization as the set in and, and the global economy uh, took hold, uh, beginning in, the, in the, the Reagan administration, the jobs go away, the steel factory closes, uh, Main Street shutters, and 50,000 people uh, dropped to 20,000, and uh, the pool couldn't hang on. It was just not feasible, I guess, and um, and it was no way to, I guess, support it. And, and in 1993, they closed Dreamland Pool. Um, I thought this was a very um, stark and sad uh, story, and particularly given the way people loved that pool. Uh, it's remarkable the memories that you uh, can hear when people are asked what they what they remember about Dreamland. Uh, you know, the place where they got their first kiss. It's a place where they all hung out. It was just this place where everybody got to know one another. Everybody saw each other. 
And there was really kind of a, uh, a place where class almost dissolved as well because everybody kind of looked the same in, a, in gym trunk, in swim trunks. You know, the factory owner, the factory manager, the factory worker uh, looked the same. This closure uh, left the town extraordinarily vulnerable, weakened, um, isolated. Lots of people had left. A lot of houses were abandoned, and people no longer uh, went outside much. Walmart replaced Dreamland as the place where, if you were going to see anybody, it was going to be at, 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 at Walmart. Um and to me, Dreamland is a stand-in uh, for the country. It's for what we have done to destroy a community, to ignore or not invest in community, and leaving us extraordinarily isolated. Um, and that is in um, Rust Belt communities, Appalachian communities, but wealthy communities and else, elsewhere in the country as well. It's not, it's not just... Economics is not the, 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 the common denominator. It's isolation and, and what we have done to destroy the bonds between us and among us. And, and, and so that's why Dreamland Pool was really the, the, um, a way of uh, uh, the title of the book because I felt that that isolation, that destruction of community had left us as a nation extraordinarily vulnerable to um, – to uh, 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 these kinds of drugs, the opiates, which are the most isolating of all uh, of all the drugs, uh, they, they they turn people inward. People don't want to be part of a community. Don't want to know their old friends. They just want to get high and be alone. And, and so that's why uh, that's what Dreamland was, and why I chose it as a as a title um, uh, for the book. It has to do with this with this swimming pool. Mm-hmm. And how did you get interested in this topic? What about the topic interested you? The first thing, well, I lived in Mexico for 10 years, and I wrote two books about Mexico. And so my first impulse um, was, uh, or my, I guess the way I entered this story was I wanted to know why it was that heroin traffickers from Mexico were doing such banner business. I didn't know anything about uh, uh, narcotic pain pills. You know, I didn't, I just, I wanted, I didn't know what a Vicodin was. I didn't know what Oxycontin was when I started this story. I wanted to know, um, I saw that seizures at the border were up for heroin. Heroin seizures at the border were up, according to the DEA. And that means more and more people were using heroin. To me, that's what that means. Um, and so I began to think, um, I began to wonder why that was. I thought heroin was this old school drug that no one really was in, was really, you know, use any of ever again. And what ended up happening was um, I, I began to realize as I got into that story that the reason why was this much much larger story of this revolution in pain management in modern American medicine that held that we were a country in an epidemic of pain and that, that now narcotic painkillers were somehow um, uh, virtually non-addictive for almost everybody under almost any situation, so long as they were used to treat pain. Um, so um, that was how I got into it. Most people, of course, followed the pills, and then the pills lead them to the realization, oh, my God, this is creating a huge in increase in heroin use. That was not my route. Um, I started with heroin. 
because I knew Mexico, because I'd lived there many years and written extensively about it. I wanted to know why these drug traffickers were doing such big business. I began to realize it was because of this pill phenomenon. So what was the most unexpected thing that you learned during your reporting on the book? Uh, well, there were many, and it's hard to nar narrow that down. But, but I would say, first off, that the, the idea that um, anyone would believe that narcotic painkillers derived from the opium poppy would not be addictive. This is a plant that we first harvested as a species, as medicine. We've known about this plant and known how to use it and known its attributes for 5,000-plus years. And during that time, we know two things very, very clearly. One is it's a magnificent painkiller. Number two is it's very, very addictive. And we decided to believe as a culture, as a country, that the second one uh, wasn't true uh, anymore or that science now knew that this was not true. And um, that was a surprising idea to me. Um, and, and, you know, also along with that, the enormous power of pharmaceutical marketing, of marketing in general. And then finally, I would say um, how much of this, I think, is also due to our own um, uh, desires as American health consumers to simply not feel pain, uh, to just not have to do the, the hard work of, of wellness, you know, working out, getting exercise, eating better, um, not using uh, not not uh, smoking. Um, I think a lot of Americans got into the idea that that it didn't matter what they did, that there was a pill to keep them from accountability for their worst consumer decisions. And if you ask me, that's also a huge part of it, and, and also a, a surprising thing that, that came out of the research that I was doing. So, what will you be talking about when you come to Canton? Um, a little bit of a lot of this, um, you know, that the, there's a, um, the, the, how we got into this, um, why we got into this, what are the factors, there are many factors, I think, and also the idea that, um, that fundamentally it is because of our, of our own profound isolation, whether in, in poverty or in wealth, we seem as a culture to prize isolation, to be on our own and, and really not want to kind of work together, be together. And, and therefore, I believe that um, strongly that, that, um, that whatever um, tack we, we choose um, to fight this problem, um, it, the most important is coming together in community, to, uh, collaboration. Um, cooperation that, that in, in fact I believe that this is one of the most um, powerful forces for change in America today this epidemic because it's forcing us to, to understand how isolated we are and if we want to change it if we want to reverse it that we need to also reverse this this isolating tendency and and and, and return to a more um, a community oriented um, uh, uh, approach to life and, and policy and working together. How many places do you think you've given talks like this? 
Oh my gosh, I wouldn't know. Maybe fifty to seventy-five. Okay, I, can't, I, I don't know, but it's a good question. Maybe we should count it up actually. And I've got many more this, this spring and fall. So, what do people tell you about their own experiences with the epidemic? I imagine you know after they hear you speak. Oh, it's very profound. It's very intense. Um, people come up and uh, want to hug me. Want to uh, they frequently they tell me stories of their their child. Uh, their spouse, maybe uh, even an uncle or somebody like that. Uh, it's not just kids, by the way. I mean, it's important to understand that this, because of how it starts, it does, doesn't involve kids. It involves uh, um, people in middle age, you know, a lot. Uh, and so you're seeing, uh, I get a whole lot of very profound conversations with people who are, um, who have had bad experiences, who are living through the, the torment of this, who have kids in prison, um, who have uh, who have maybe seen neighborhoods or churches or football or sports teams destroyed by this. Grandparents raising grandchildren, wow, get that a lot. Very often giving talks to professional conferences, um, public health, nurses, doctors, hospital administrators, uh, stuff like that. And, um, of course, you're just overwhelmed, too. I'm just overwhelmed sometimes by how much of this problem is part of their professional life. Um, I'm, I'm very, very grateful um, uh, to many people who come up and tell, them, tell me how much the book has helped them or meant to them. Parents tell me this, professionals in public health or policing. Uh, tell me this as well. Uh, it's really uh, just um, uh, very uplifting. I'm very, very grateful to to these people that who 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 come up and and you know want to take a picture with me. It's a bizarre idea. I'm a reporter. I'm not a you know a, a, a try not to be a star or anything. And so people who come up and do that. It's it took, it's taken a while for me to get used to that. I've never had people do that. Ask me to take pictures with them. It's it's just a um, a remarkable um, uh, um, uh, experience because you see Americans, um, you know, all across the country, and you see how much this has affected um, so many people who. Who are just been battered by this, you know, um, and and it just it makes me feel um, sad that the country is going through this, and sad for them, of course. It also makes me feel there are times when I feel quite uplifted too, though, um, by by people's experience, what people are doing, how people are responding, um, and again, uh, the way people some very often are coming together in community uh, in different counties around the country. To, to fight this and to, and, and, you know, no one has the answer. There is no one answer. There's lots of little answers and we've got to put them all together and, and, and each County and try to, and try to figure out how to do that. That, that seems to me like the way to go. But um, anyway, it's, it's, it's a, it's a profound thing. My wife and I both um, uh, and my daughter have been uh, very, um, emotionally i would say impacted by this i like by the way my wife and daughter won't be with me but they have traveled with me to some of these um uh, uh speeches because i want 
them. They were they were integral. They were fundamental in producing the book. I wrote it, and the mistakes are mine, but 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 the, they were essential in its production, uh, just simply by being a team. We're a team on this, and so I've been. They've come along to a few speeches, that be, largely because I want them to feel the intensity uh, 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 of the of the reception. Uh, uh, the, 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 of this thing that they helped create. Uh, it's really quite overwhelming sometimes. Since the book came out, um, you know, we, we've seen a lot with uh, the rise of fentanyl, carfentanyl. You know, how yeah. has this opioid epidemic been changing, and, and how has the business model changed? I mean, you write a lot about the, the business yeah. model of, of the heroin dealers. How has that started to change? couple of things that are important to understand. On a positive side, well, on the negative side, yes, fentanyl has entered the picture. And what that really is attributable to is the fact that it's no longer just the guys I was writing about uh, from the small town in Mexico. Uh, now the market has exploded geometrically. And so many, 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 many people have gotten into the market selling it and, and, and they and, and Many people among them have figured out that the real uh, profit is not even in heroin. It's in fentanyl, this, this, opioid, this opioid that doesn't require a plant to be produced. And, and it's very, very easy to traffic, I mean, through the mail, you know. Um, so what's happened is that the guys that I wrote about are still active, uh, as far as I know. In fact, I know that they're still active. Um, but there's just so many more people now involved in it. Um, Americans, Mexicans, um, uh, people of all kinds. The market has just expanded enormously now um, in the last couple of years, you know. And, um, and that is uh, an amazing, scary thing to watch, particularly because fentanyl is part of the mix now. And carfentanil is as well. And these things are very, very deadly, particularly the way they are produced in the underworld, which is as powder. Powder is very easy to inhale, very easy to, to die from. And, of course, these guys are not perfect in the way they mix the stuff, too, you know. Um, so all of that is, is very scary. And the, the business model now, I think, is to make your dope as potent as possible so that it will overdose or kill a few people. And when it does that, you all the other addicts run to it because you remember, uh, you, you, you might know that in the heroin world or in the opiate addict world, um, a, a person who ODs on a, on, a, on, a, on a kind of drug is not, that's not a warning to everybody. That's an advertisement. And everyone runs to that because they want to get higher than they've ever gotten high before. And, and they, they just think, well, I'm not going to die, but he died, but I won't. And so what that means is it's just democratized the business now everybody has access to supply there used to be supply only for um you know people who were from certain parts of mexico and that was that was it now anybody can can get access to supply this stuff is not just coming from mexico it's sold on the dark web and the dark web is open to anybody and um and that's very scary now on the positive side i would say that we are seeing uh, a, a couple of things. One is that people are no longer hiding in the shadows, afraid to be public about the, the, the affliction of their loved one. Families are coming out. They're on Facebook. They're writing obituaries that are telling the truth. Um, they are out of the shadows, and that has created um, 
a, a certain a, a awareness that was not present when I was writing the book. I definitely saw that people were not doing that. Um, at the same time, very positively, I think you are seeing all across the country in county after county, um, groups form, bringing together all kinds of disparate voices and, and experiences um, to work on this, to collaborate, to, to, to be part of a kind of a community response that I think is just thrilling to, to behold. And I think is that's if there's a positive here, it's that. It's watching these small groups form, uh, and now it's breaking down that to a certain degree I've seen. And, and I think that's wonderful. I just love watching that. And, and it's not sexy. It's very mundane sometimes. It's just people working together, getting to know one another, going out and, and uh, going to barbecues, getting each other's cell phone numbers, knowing each other by the first name, things that never happened uh, uh, before. It sounds very easy or, or common sense or, or obvious, but it wasn't happening at all. You know, So I think that's part of the positive that we're seeing, again, um, uh, the reason I think this is such a profound um, epidemic is because it's not just about drugs. It's about our own isolation as Americans from each other and that, that, coming, that, that it is bringing us in a very bizarre uh, way. It's a catastrophe that is um, bringing us together. So you mentioned that there's not one response to this um, or, or one solution. Um, what kind of responses seem to be, be working out there? That All kinds. No, this has to be uh, prevention. It has to be, and part of prevention is working on supply. So doctors have to be aware that this is a problem that they helped and are helping create every day. Um, and prevention, in my opinion, in this situation is um, all about supply because this is a supply story. Supply creates demand in this case. Um, uh, I think uh, law enforcement has a pivotal role. It's not the only uh, group that needs to be involved in this, as there was the case maybe many years ago, but certainly there is absolutely no uh, 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 attack on this without law enforcement uh, that makes any sense. Uh, we need to expand treatment. Uh, we need to expand um, uh, the way uh, medical schools teach pain management, I think. We'd one of the most important things is we need to really present a united front and get insurance companies to stop, to start reimbursing for pain strategies that do not involve narcotic painkillers. Um, if, if all we do is reduce the supply of these painkillers and tell people they can't use them anymore, but yet there's no other strategy to, with, or strategies, plural, with which to deal with their pain, uh, to confront their pain, then all we're doing is pushing people into the black market, and that is cruel and in no way um, a, a, a good thing. So I think that there's a wide variety of things, and there's a wide variety of groups, too, that need to be involved, churches and clergy and, and, and um, uh, synagogues, mosques. All these places need to be involved, little leagues, athletic trainers, coaches, um, recovering addicts, primary care docs, Kiwanis Club, chambers of commerce. Chambers of commerce, this is a business story. When you have counties where there are uh, 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 
50% or more of the people applying for a job can't pass a drug test. I mean, to me, that's, that's a, that means this is a business story, you know. So I, I, this is why I say I believe that there is the opportunity here for some birds in much of the country, particularly, and it doesn't necessarily mean only in, in, in um, battered Rust Belt areas. I'm talking also about um, wealthy, wealthy suburbs where still people don't know each other, where people are horribly isolated. Um, I think that there is within this epidemic uh, the opportunity for rebirth, and that's um, as much as a catastrophe as it's been, it also holds that possibility uh, of rebirth, and I think that's can be exciting. Where do you think we're headed in the next couple of years nationally? Oh, I have no – seriously, I would be crazy to predict it. I didn't predict fentanyl, so I don't know. Um, I'm uh, – I would, I would, I guess I would find it hard to imagine that um, we would see a, a d- severe diminishing of this problem, serious diminishing of this problem. Um, on the other hand, I do believe in the power of collaboration, um, and the po- that that that's how innovation comes through collaboration. And the more that that happens, I think the more positives will will see. Now, as you know, we've been living with this in Ohio. Uh for a long time, but it seems yeah. like some other places are just discovering this idea yeah. of, of opioids. Yeah. I guess, what do you tell people who you meet who, who still say that they don't see a problem out there? I say that this starts because doctors bought an idea all across the country, and if it's doctors and not drug traffickers, that means the potential for its spread is huge, monumentally more than, than if it was just drug, drug traffickers, because everybody goes to the doctor, and doctors are everywhere, and they're well-respected, and by the way, these are sincere, well-trained, well-meaning, good doctors. They just bought an idea that, that wasn't always true, um, and so there is no uh, uh, place in America that I think is somehow immune from this, uh, and how bad it actually gets, I suppose, depends on circumstances in different areas. But, but, but everybody's exposed to those, it seems to me. So have you been back to Mexico? Back to Jalisco? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Although not back to that town. I've been to um, uh, parts of Mexico. Yeah, and Tijuana I go to fairly re- regularly, actually. I've been to Tijuana four or five times in the last two years. And that's only about 150 miles from my house. So I go there a lot. Okay. I was wondering if you had gotten back to, uh, was that Nayarit State or whatever? No, I have not. Okay. No, I'm uh, see how things kind of let that be. <laughs> what about Portsmouth? Oh, yeah. I've been uh, back there three times since the book came out, I think. It's the last time. Um, a year ago, maybe? I can't remember. Yeah. I think what's happening in Portsmouth is kind of is fascinating. It, it's On one level, there's lots of problems. There is very very serious problems in that town. Um, one reason is that there just aren't a lot of jobs that, that lead anywhere. Um, but, you know, fentanyl has been a hurricane through that area. Um, on the other hand, there's also lots of wonderful things happening, and, and people are not taking this lying down. That's what I love about Portsmouth, that you see um, a remodeling going on. You see a cafe, an outdoor cafe that's the first place where people have to get together outside since Dreamland closed in Portsmouth. 
Uh, you have workout places. You have remodeling. You have new businesses starting up. So, you know, what's interesting about Portsmouth is not that it's just all of a sudden paradise on earth. It's that it's no longer one story at work. 